Hi everyone and welcome to How to College for First Gens, where we have real conversations about what it's like to be a first generation student before, during, and after college. For those of you new to the podcast, our goal here is to democratize knowledge that we've gained along the way, learn a little bit more about the first gen experience, and hopefully help others going through some of the challenges we've experienced by sharing lessons learned from fellow first gens. I am Luce, one of the podcast co-hosts and a first generation student myself. Today, I have the pleasure of talking with Angela about living your purpose and what that means. I think as first gens, many of us often feel pressure to be versions of ourselves that others expect from us, and we may often get lost or disconnected from what we may feel our true purpose may be. Join us today as Angela talks about how she herself was able to find her own purpose and how she helps others realign themselves with who they are with six simple steps. Angela, thank you so much for joining us today. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to our audience? Yeah, Luz, first off, just thank you so much for having me. Super excited to be here today. By way of introduction, my name is Angela Choi, and I am a purpose and fulfillment coach. I help people really tune into and discover their purpose and fulfill their purpose by overcoming limiting beliefs, cultivating the right mindset, and taking aligned action. Much of my work stems from my own personal experiences of trying to find my purpose in the corporate, startup, and nonprofit worlds across Asia, Africa, US. And the whole time that I was trying to figure out my purpose, I dealt a lot with self-judgment, familiar pressure, and societal expectations. And so the reason why I do the work I do now is because I want to help other people who are in similar positions, like the one that I was in where I was trying to figure out my life. Awesome. Thank you so much, Angela. And before we dive deep into, you know, what finding your purpose was like, why don't you just give us a quick background of what your college journey was like? How did you figure out you were first gen and what that was all like? Yeah, so (laughs) I applied to college many, many years ago. And this is 2007, to be exact. And I'm not sure if the term first gen was on my radar. I think it became evident to me that I was the first to attend college because of the college application. There's a section where they ask you, like, what is the highest level of education that your parents received? And for both of my parents, it was some high school. But this wasn't anything out of the norm for me either, because I grew up in Chinatown, New York City. So like a lot of people that I was surrounded with were in similar positions. So I didn't make anything of it. I was a very ambitious and hardworking uh, high school student. And as a senior in high school, I was introduced to QuestBridge. And I think that QuestBridge made me aware more so of the fact that I come from a low income background, but not so much the first gen component of it. And I think there's more awareness now that like those can go hand in hand. So this is to say that like, There was some awareness when I was applying to college, but it wasn't the awareness that we have now that there's language and terminology for, and there's actually support and resources for people in our position. And so I applied to a a couple of schools through QuestBridge and ultimately ended up going to Yale. Yeah, so I was actually in the same position where the whole first gen didn't really come into play till filling out like the information about your parents and stuff and like you I was also crushed bridge 
So what was your college journey through Yale at? Was that a big culture shock? Were you exposed to a lot of people that weren't first gen? Were there like expectations that you had to like pursue certain career paths? I mean, there's so much to unpack here. I think that going into Yale, there were spoken and unspoken, but very more spoken (laughs) expectations that I was going to Yale and come out and make a lot of money for whatever reason. That's what the Chinese American community or at least the people in my community associated Yale with. Obviously, there was a lot of prestige associated with Yale, but for whatever reason, money was thrown into the equation as well. And it was just like, oh, she's going to come out and make a lot of money. And people would say that like jokingly, but I feel like behind every joke, there's some truth to it. So I went into Yale with that type of expectation. I think that as I spent more time at Yale, what did occur to me was that a lot of people had resources that I didn't have because they come from white collar middle class families. And that became more evident to me as I went through Yale. And I think that, again, there wasn't a lot of support for first gen low income students. And so I really felt like I had to figure out a lot of things on my own because like it was, it felt like I was straddling two worlds, the world back at home and then Yale and people back at home, like my, my family, like wouldn't know what it is that I was going through. I remember feeling very intimidated going into Yale because I knew that I was surrounded by incredibly intelligent and capable people. And I remember telling my mom that I was scared of being in that type of environment. And she said to me, like, don't worry, just try your best, which is like not enough (laughs) for an 18 year old going into this hyper elite environment. And I wish that there had been again, more vocabulary and resources for people like me. I'm so glad that there is now. There's a whole chapter at Yale called First Gen Yale that was started to help students like me. But I think that because that was my reality, it was just like, okay, this is my reality. What can I do? And so I felt like I had to figure things out on my own and that if I wanted things to happen, like I would have to be the one to be proactive about that. And so even, you know, my first year of college, because there was this expectation like, oh, Angela's going to come out and make a lot of money. Like my first semester of college, I remember I was already going to the career fair, right? Like that was for seniors. And I was like already there, like trying to see, okay, suss out the situation. Like, what is this like? What are the companies that are coming? Which is kind of ridiculous when you think about it. I think like there should have been more room for exploration instead of thinking so pre-professionally. But I think the flip side of that was like this, there was a lot of ownership and agency. And I was like, if I want to make things happen, then I have to be the one taking action and putting myself out there. So I actually spent a lot of time at the Office of Career Services. And, you know, my first semester, I really already started learning how to write an effective resume, how to write an effective cover letter. And then I actually ended up getting a job at the Office of Career Services. I guess all of this is to say, like, I wish that I had more support and felt like I was straddling two worlds and also felt like if I wanted to make things happen, I just needed to take action. So that was how I navigated my time at Yale. So that's interesting, because for me, when I was in college, as a freshman, I did not even have like career 
on my radar. So I majored in chemical engineering. So I figured, you know, it's like a really set path. Like you get the degree, you get these certain kinds of jobs and like it's all figured out for you. So that's sort of like the mindset that I had going in. And then as I was going through it, I was like, okay, no, that's actually not quite, you know, as set as I thought it was. Like there's all these things you need to make sure you do. So for you, like what was your major and like how did you land that first job after graduating? I majored in psychology. I landed my first job through on-campus recruiting. I ended up following a pretty standard path. I went into consulting. And so there were a lot of consulting companies that came to recruit on campus for starting positions at these firms. I will say that I didn't go into college thinking I was going into consulting. I think most college students don't. I was actually very nonprofit oriented throughout my time in college. And the most meaningful internship experiences that I had was when I interned for the Legal Aid Society fighting eviction cases for low-income families in New York City. And I was taking a bunch of law classes in college, and I actually wanted to go to law school to pursue public interest law, but decided to make a pivot, I would say, like my second half of my college experience, because I didn't know how to reconcile the cost of law school with the salary of a public interest lawyer. And so I figured I could start out in the corporate world, make some money, and then figure out if I want to go back to school. And I think this is a really good example of how first-gen students who may not have the luxury, or maybe I wish that there had been other people who encouraged me to think about this differently. But at that point in my life, it didn't feel like a good financial decision to make. But I think everything also happens for a reason. So it happened the way that it was supposed to happen. Yeah, that's interesting you bring up because when I was going through my degree, I didn't even think about other alternatives. The plan was graduate, get a job, have money. Because as a low income person, if you're broke all the time, you need to have a little bit of money to feel like beyond like stable footing and whatnot. So I didn't even consider like really doing graduate school or any of that stuff, because I didn't have any means to even think about it in my head, at least. Right. I definitely agree that yeah, the first gen and the low income group, I think are often out of that that piece because they don't think that that's an option for them. Right, correct. And and then sometimes you have situations where students are also like providing financially for their families. And I think that also, you know, throws a wrench in the picture because there are other external considerations that factor into the decision-making process that may make things more complex. Absolutely. So then you, you know, went into consulting, which pretty big money. <laughs> And, you know, having all this money, like being able to like have all these resources now to both provide for yourself and your family. How did you then decide that you weren't going to be doing that anymore? That's a good question. So I remember, you know, when I first started out in consulting, I went through this period where my work was my life. I didn't really have a life outside of work because in addition to doing client work for the consulting firm that I worked for, there was what they called reinvest work, where you do internal work to reinvest into the firm, which is outside of external client work. So it felt like if I wasn't doing client work, then I was at home doing internal reinvest work. So I was on these long-term consulting projects where I was doing the same things day in, day out. And I remember that at that point in my life, feeling like my brain and soul were rotting and feeling like I wasn't 
living up to my full potential. And there is this quote that I heard back then that really resonated with me, which is, hell is where the person you are meets the person you could have become. And that was something that was just on the forefront of my mind a lot. And I think I just had a hard time grappling with the monotony and the routine of what I was doing day to day and feeling like I wasn't making a meaningful impact on the world, especially coming from, again, having interned in the nonprofit sector, and then also just coming from an academic environment where intellectual curiosity was very much encouraged and being surrounded by people who were learning things for the sake of learning things. And all of a sudden being in this office environment where I was doing the same things day in, day out. And I was looking at people who were above me on the totem pole and no one really looked happy. I felt like a lot of people were there because they had families to provide for and they had just fallen into a way of being. And I just remember thinking I wanted something different for myself. And that's when I decided that it was time for me to make a pivot. So you didn't see yourself there long term. It didn't really look like it was a fulfilling thing or career that you really wanted to stick to. So how did you make that pivot? So at that point, I started thinking about what I wanted in a job. And it was quite simple at that point in my life. I knew that I wanted to have more autonomy and ownership of what I was doing at work. And I knew that I wanted to work for a smaller organization. And I knew that I wanted to do work that felt meaningful for me. And so I started applying for jobs in the healthcare startup space because jobs in that space really hit the criteria. Those startups are a lot smaller, especially when they're starting up. There's definitely a lot more autonomy because in the beginning, you're wearing multiple hats. And in the healthcare space, you're making an impact with what it is that you're doing. And so I ended up pivoting into a startup. I was probably employee number 60. And the startup provides behavioral therapy to patients. And I was helping out with the operations side of things. And that was how I decided to make that move. Okay, yeah. So that makes sense. You had like these criteria that you wanted to meet. And that was sort of filling those check boxes. So at that point, did you feel like it was about finding your purpose or was it more like, I know I don't like this consulting, like I'm over it. I, I want to find something else that like will make me a little bit more fulfilled. Was that more the thinking or when did you realize like it was about finding your purpose and what does that really like mean to you? I think that at that point, I wasn't thinking so much of like, what is my purpose in this world? That's always been the, in the back of my mind. But I think in the forefront, it was just like, my consulting job isn't working. How do I change the situation? That was what was most important to me. So how do I make career decisions that are more aligned to my values and what I care about? So I think that was forefront. And I think in the back of my mind, like, I think it's this like ongoing questioning of how can I have the most impact on the world with what it is that I'm doing. But I think at that point in my life, what was salient was just like, getting a job that would make me happier. And I think that the whole purpose question really started coming into play more so when I was at my second job at the startup job. And I think with any job, uh, I reached a point where I started questioning again, what is it that I really wanted to do? And I knew that it wasn't the startup job. 
but I didn't know what to do next. And I didn't want to have a job just for the sake of having a job. And so I made what was a very difficult decision at that time, but I'm grateful that I made that decision. I decided to leave my startup job without another job lined up so that I could take some time off to try different things to see what would work and what wouldn't work. Because I think that part of figuring out what it is that you like involves figuring out what it is that you don't like. And in order to figure out what it is that you don't like, you have to try things out. And so I did a lot of the things that I've always like wanted to do and was curious about, but couldn't do because I had a full-time job. And so I spent a year traveling, volunteering, going on different fellowships, and then I revisited the whole job search process. Yeah, I feel like that's where I am right now, where I'm just like, I know this is not what I want to do, but like, I don't know what I want to do. And I know that, yeah, that it would be super cool to like, just go out and like, try a bunch of different things. But my concern is always like, how do you fund it? Like, if you don't have a job to pay for these things, then how do you go about doing that? So how were you able to like, try these different opportunities to figure out what you do like and what you don't like? without having that steady income coming through where you're able to find like funded opportunities or how did that work? I did a bunch of different things. And for example, I did a public policy fellowship in the realm of education and they they paid a stipend that was enough to cover the summer, for example. Or I ended up working on a cruise ship that sailed around Southeast Asia and Oceania and they covered my room and board. And so I just found ways to make that work. And also because I had been working for a couple of years, I had money saved up that could afford me the opportunity to travel a little bit in between. And so it it was a hodgepodge of finding opportunities that would support me in some way, shape or form. And then like also having money saved up. I also want to say, because you had mentioned that you're in a similar position where like you realize that your current job isn't working, but you don't know what it is that you want to do next. Just from my own personal experiences and from my experiences like coaching people, when people say that they don't know, it's not that they don't know. It's usually one of two things. It's one deep down inside they know, but there are too many things that are in the way, whether that's fears right? Fear of failure, fear of success, fear of what other people will think if I do something different, or they feel like they don't know how to get to where it is that they want to be. And because they don't know the how, then the default answer is, I don't know. Ah, very interesting. That makes a lot of sense. You got to look inward and like really see what's going on. Yes, because I remember being in that position. And now I help other people who are in that position. And people know, trust me, people know what it is that they want to do. It's just that either one, fears are holding them back, or two, they don't know how to go about doing it. And so it's easier to say, I don't know. You Obviously, you mentioned you do this coaching stuff. So how did you get to that point from, you know, trying a bunch of different things to the point where you're like, okay, I need to start my own business and I need to like teach people like how to figure these things out? Long story short, after my year of traveling, volunteering, and doing different fellowships, there was a lot of pressure to enter the workforce again. And I think that being from a low-income immigrant family really fueled that pressure. Um, So my dad was under the impression that I had spent a year being a beach bum 
And he thought that I had lost all of my work ethic. And he thought that I went bonkers. And he basically said to me, like, you need to start having a job again. This is not working what you're doing. And at that point in my life, I had come back to New York and I have several native New Yorker friends who I grew up with who were settling down, getting married, buying property. And I started feeling like, oh man, if that's what I want to do one day, I need to have a full-time job. And so I decided to pivot into the nonprofit world because so much of what I had done during that year was getting involved with different nonprofits. And I ended up working for a nonprofit serving 9-11 and military families running their career resource center and career coaching uh, some of our constituents. And through that experience, I realized how much I enjoyed coaching and mentoring people was something that I've done in different capacities for a very long time. You know, like in college, it's like helping high school students through the college admissions process. When I was working in consulting, I was helping college students through the interviewing process. And so it's always been something that I care deeply about. And then after my last job at the nonprofit, I realized that it was something that I could branch off and do on my own. So then what ended up happening was January of 2020, I uh, had at that point left my job. And I got a one way ticket to India to do a little bit of soul searching and do yoga teacher training. And there were a bunch of other things I wanted to do. And then March 2020, the pandemic hit, and I decided to come back to the States. And I because I couldn't travel. And because I didn't want to go back to nine to five, I thought it was time for me to start my coaching business. And that's how that came to be. Kind of like, set itself up for you to do that in a way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so now that you do all of this coaching and kind of teach others like what it means to live your purpose and live more authentically, what do you tell them that that means and how do you navigate those conversations of like figuring that out for people? There's a lot to unpack there. So the first of which people define purpose very differently. I think that it's very easy to associate your purpose with your career, which is very understandable because we spend the bulk of our waking hours at our jobs. We spend the bulk of our waking hours working, but I take more of a holistic approach to purpose. And I think that living your purpose means being intentional about how it is that you're living your life, both in and outside of work. So for me, it means like, what does it mean for you to contribute to people places, communities in your life in ways that feel meaningful, authentic, and real for you. And so that answer is different for everyone, right? Because what is meaningful for you may not be meaningful for me. And so how do you cultivate these meaningful experiences both in and outside of work by contributing in ways that feel authentic to you? So tapping into your unique gifts, talents, skills, and life experiences. So that's how I define living your purpose. I also believe that living your purpose is constantly in flux. It evolves as you evolve. We are changing beings. And so what may feel like it's in alignment with your purpose this year may not resonate with you next year or the following year. And that's okay because you're changing. Your values are changing. And so your expression of you know your purpose can change as well. 
I don't think it's fixed is what I mean to say. And that's how I define it. And then in terms of how I would encourage people to go about discovering their purpose. So I have a six, six step process that I usually walk people through, which I can share very briefly here. And I encourage people to also just check out the guide on my website where you can download a PDF to go over what it is that I'm about to share with you. So in terms of the six steps to living your purpose, I think that first step is to really be present. And I think that involves some sort of mindfulness component, whether that's through meditation or engaging in mindful activity, whether that's like sitting with a cup of tea or sitting with a cup of coffee. And the reason why being present is so important is because when you're fully present, you will be able to access your inner voice of wisdom that can otherwise be clouded by thoughts that you have on this consistent basis that are clouding what you actually feel inside. So that's the first step. The second step is to reflect on your past. So what are some of the things that you enjoy doing as a kid? Like who were you before the inhibition started coming up, right? Like because we all have this natural state of who we are, what we enjoyed, but at a certain age, we were told that certain things were wrong or we couldn't do certain things. And then our authentic selves were were hidden, started becoming hidden, right? So like reflecting on your past so that you can have more clarity in the present. The, the third step is to align with your values, something that we've touched upon in this conversation. So figuring out what is important to you, what you stand for, because when you know what your values are, anytime that you're at a crossroads, if you can make decisions that are aligned with your values, then you're going to be moving in the quote unquote right direction. The fourth step is to do without your inner critic. We all have an inner critic, if not like a committee up there in our heads telling us that we're not good enough, we're not capable enough. There's other people out there who are already doing the things we want to do, whatever the story may be. And it's important to know that you're not your inner critic. You are the person who observes and witnesses the inner critic so that you can separate the two and realize that your inner critic is there to protect you because anytime you do something uncomfortable, your your ego is scared of the unknown. And so like naming your inner critic so that you can separate you from your inner critic so that you can go after what it is that you truly want, which brings me to my fifth step, which is to dream big. Like, what do you want your life to look like? if you didn't have fears holding you back? Like, what do you want your life to look like if money were of no concern, right? To really allow yourself to dream big. And this is really important because I think that it's very easy to be limited in the dreams that we have because of our current circumstances, but our current circumstances do not dictate our future. Our futures can look drastically different from where we are present day, right? And then the last step is to take consistent action consistent small steps to get to your big dreams because consistency is key and anyone can dream but in order to bring your dreams to fruition the action also needs to take place what I call aligned action so in a nutshell those are my six steps again I would encourage if people are visual to go to my website and and download that guide Awesome. And yeah, we'll make sure to link that up on our website so people can find that role easily. So thank you so much for running through the six steps. That's really helpful to kind of have you lay them out how you see them. 
But like now that you've worked with a number of people, what do you think or what have you seen is the most common, I guess, roadblock and how do you overcome that? By the time that people decide to work with me, the most common roadblock is what I shared with you, which is like people are like, ah, I don't know what it is that I want to do. <laughs> and so the work that we do is uncovering that. And as a coach, I'm there and I'm able to provide more of an aerial view as to like what is happening because I'm not living that person's life. And I have more of an objective view also because of my life experiences. And so just asking the right questions and listening to what is being said and what isn't being said to help people really draw out the answers that are already within them. It's just that sometimes you have to ask the right question and give them the space to think about these things that the answers will be drawn forth because my philosophy, and I've seen this over and over again, is that the answers are within you. I'm just merely an objective third party coming in drawing the answers out from you because like I can't be telling you what to be doing because that's not authentic to who you are you're the one who knows what it is that you truly want to be doing and again what holds people back from really going into that space is either one fear again fear of failure opposite side of the same coin is fear of success like worrying that you may not be able to live up to others expectations if you do something that you've never done before and then the second reason is that you don't know how you're going to get to what it is that you want to do. And so it's easier to just default. To, I don't know. So reflecting on your own personal life, what do you think was the hardest hump for you to overcome to getting to where you are now? Oh, so many humps. Oh, man. Let me just give you a laundry list that comes to mind. I think a big thing was that I felt a lot of pressure about what it is that I was quote unquote supposed to be doing as a Yale grad. Again, this expectation that I was supposed to make a lot of money and a lot of Yaleys that I knew, you know, followed pretty standard paths, whether that's like two years of consulting and then business school or law school or medical school. And so there was this, there was a lot of internalized pressure for me to prove that I could do those things too. Case in point, that year that I took off, I ended up applying to business school because I felt like it was more socially acceptable for me to be in business school and not really know what it is that I wanted to do with my life than being unemployed and not knowing what to do with my life. And I got into business school, but decided to turn down business school because I didn't feel like I was going for the right reasons. And so I would say that one of my biggest challenges is really like shying away from like what I thought I should be doing and really listening to what it is that I wanted to be doing. So that, that was a big hurdle for me to overcome. And then there were just so many things surrounding that, like even when I moved to the healthcare startup, like there was self judgment about like not making as much money as I did in the corporate world. And so I think in a nutshell, it's like all of these like, external expectations that I internalized and like turned it into my own that were never meant, they were never meant for me to carry, but then I ended up carrying. And then I also always knew that I wanted to help people and make an impact and work with people directly. But then I didn't know how to do that, right? And so I am a classic example of someone that had this inkling that I wanted to make an impact on the world, but didn't necessarily know 
how to go about doing that. And so stuck on the how versus like the what and the why. Thank you so much for sharing. I think it definitely helps at least me realize this is not just me. Like this is something that happens to everyone. And a lot of these same hurdles, like if you can overcome them, so can all of us, me, the listeners, everyone, hopefully. So thank you so much. And so we're kind of running out of time here. So maybe my last question to you is maybe what are some tips or some advice that you would offer some fellow first gens about how they can go about living their purpose? I think that one of the first things that comes to mind is to be honest and unapologetic about what it is that you want. To really turn inward to figure out what it is that you want and then to own what you want to feel good about what you want versus feeling like that's not something you quote unquote should be doing or whatever other people will think about you. Because the reality is that everyone is too busy thinking about themselves to be thinking about what it is that you're doing. Um, So just wanted to bring some levity into that. And then I think that the second thing that I want to say to the first gen community is that I also recognize that there are practical considerations for some folks, like I mentioned, in terms of financially supporting their families. This is something that, you know, I I can relate to. And what I want to say is that what's important is to prioritize what matters to you. And these priorities can change at any point in your life. So if your priority is to provide for your family then maybe like having a job that you absolutely love is secondary to that, but it doesn't mean that it will always be secondary. And so to recognize that, to one, recognize your priorities and two, to know that your priorities can change at any time, I think is really important. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Angela, for joining us on our podcast, sharing a little bit about your own journey and sharing some really valuable tips on helping others find their own purpose. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. As you heard from Angela, to find your purpose so you can live more authentically requires some inner reflection, dreaming big, and recognizing that we are ever-changing beings that may need some realignment every once in a while. If you're finding yourself feeling stuck or questioning the work that you're doing, take a step back and, as Angela suggests, walk through the set of six steps to help you dive a little bit deeper and help you find your purpose. Thanks again to our guests and thank you for tuning in today on How to College for First Gens. As always, you can find us online at howtocollegefirstgen.org. If you prefer to reach us on social media, you can find us at How to College First Gen on Instagram and Facebook and HTC First Gen on Twitter. Drop us a comment and let us know about your experience with this topic. Remember, you are not alone in this journey. Until next time. <laughs>